Be kind to your mind with guided meditations from the Meditation for Women podcast. Your mental health benefits from sleeping better, releasing anxiety, and gaining clarity, all of which are benefits of meditation. And since this is Mental Health Awareness Month, give yourself the gift of meditations. All you have to do is press play and close your eyes. Listen to Meditation for Women on the free Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcasts. I know this program is 70 over 70, but uh, I really wish I were younger. I wish I were 70, but I am ready. I'm 72 years old. I'm 75, miraculously enough. I am 83 years old. I am 88 years old. You know, I'm here at 92. I'll be 94 in May. I'm 101 years old. My name is Phyllis Irwin. I'm 92 years old. I'm Lillian Federman. I'm 81. And I live with Phyllis in La Jolla, California. I'll begin because I saw her before she ever saw me. I saw her the first year she came to campus. So in the fall of 1971, I began my new position as Assistant Vice President for Academic Affairs. And the Vice President asked me to get together with that Lillian Faderman over in the English department and put together a woman's studies program. So Phyllis had invited me to lunch. I remember having this, wow, tremendous urge to put my arms around that woman and I thought this is ridiculous. I hardly know her. I'm not going to do that and embarrass myself. I resisted for for quite a while. <laughs> well, you know, I just kept persisting and inviting to have dinner or let's do this or that, you know. And it was a cold October night and we we went to walk your dog. And we came back and I realized I couldn't keep resisting. <laughs> and I didn't. And that was 50 years ago. The big thing came when Lillian said that she wanted to have a child. And I was already 34 years old and it just felt like it's now or never. So I thought about it and I thought, you know, I think I'd be a good other parent. So our son was born in 1975. Uh, I, I was writing a lot, and I was invited to a, a number of campuses to, to speak. And so I, I was gone often, and we suddenly panicked, realizing that if, if he got sick, she had no relationship to him. We had a, a friend who was a lawyer, but she said in the state of California, if there's a 10-year difference between two people, you can have an adult adoption. So Phyllis is 11 years older than I am, and she adopted me. Of course, I, I was angry that we had to jump through these hoops in order to form a legal relationship. 
but it didn't matter to me that I was now her mother legally <laughs> because I have this young boy who loves me and I love him and I love his mother and she loves me. And so the rest of it, that's not important. In the state of California in 2008, for a period of about six months, same-sex couples could get married. And so we immediately got married. Um, it didn't occur to us to undo the adoption since that was simply a legal move for us. And then in uh, 2015, same-sex marriage had become legal. And so we've, we've had an adoption, we've had an, a domestic partnership, we had a marriage, and that's not the end of our um, legal ties. After I unadopted Lillian, our son, Avram called up and he says, Mama Phyllis, now you're going to have to adopt me. Otherwise, I won't be your, your son anymore. So we went to court and I adopted him. That was very emotional because this was the final legal touch to the way we'd always felt about each other. On a personal level, nothing has changed. <laughs> On a larger level, it I think if someone had told me in the 1950s that that this would be possible, I would have thought they were smoking too much pot. <laughs> You know, what it really felt like is we were determined to have a good life together. I'm just so happy for young people that they don't have to look for ways around it, that, that they now have legal recognition that we would have loved from the beginning. But finally, finally, we have as well. We're married. We're married. And that does it. That was Phyllis Irwin and Lillian Faderman. And from Pineapple Street Studios, this is 70 Over 70, a show about making the most of the time we have left. I'm Max Linsky. My guest this week is Lily Ledbetter. Her name might be familiar. The first bill that Barack Obama signed as president was the Lilly Ledbetter Fair Pay Act. But many people don't know the story behind that bill, the story that took Lilly from Possum Trot, Alabama, to the Supreme Court and completely changed her life in the process. So that's where this conversation starts, with Lilly telling the story of the day she got an anonymous note at work that would set her on an entirely different course, one that's seen her travel the world fighting for equal pay. I wanted to hear Lily tell that story for a couple of reasons. One, it's about how pain or injustice that we endure as young people, even if we don't know about it at the time, can completely alter our later years. Two, I was curious about what it takes, emotionally and physically, to suddenly become an activist at an age when many people are settling into retirement. And finally, I wanted to know if all these years of fighting, when she's won some battles and lost others, have been worth it. Lily Ledbetter is 83 years old.
Lily Ledbetter, I'm uh, I'm so happy we're doing this. Thanks for doing the show. Thank you. I enjoy the opportunity. Anytime I get to tell my story and talk about my journey, I appreciate that. I know you've told the story lots of times, but could you tell it once more for people who are listening who maybe don't know exactly how you ended up where you've ended up? Yeah, this uh, is an awesome story. It's an awesome journey. And it's not only my case sometimes, but it's a lot of other people. Because what happened to me, I felt like I was coming into good jobs just as women had the doors opening for us a little bit, but it was still hard to get the right pay. And uh, after being with Jacksonville State University and then H&R Block, I applied for Goodyear. I wanted a job in production area because I felt like that'd be where the money would really be to help me to send my two children to college, pay off the mortgage, and save for the rest of my life. So I got a job there in 1979, but after 19 years, I found out that I was being paid 40% less than my male counterparts. Now, there's two things I think people need to know. One is this was a tire factory. That's right. This is difficult work. This is not sitting in an office. It's making tires. And the second thing is how you found out. Can you, mm-hmm. can you just tell me quickly how you learned about this pay discrepancy? We were working 12-hour shifts at this point. And I go in to work my evening shift from 7 at night to 7 in the morning. And the first thing I do is read the day-night book for any information I might need for that shift. And then I get my mail out of a little box. We each one had one at work. And I read my mail, and someone had given me a, a fourth of a sheet of paper torn, had three guys in my name, and we four had the exact same job. And I was making 40% less than I was. And that just hit me like a ton of bricks. Yeah, tell me about what that moment was like. I mean, I can't imagine. It was so devastating and humiliating. I could have crawled under a desk. And what I really would have enjoyed doing is going home, just leaving and go home. But see, I couldn't go home because I still had mortgage to pay. I still had car payments and I had two kids in college. I couldn't quit. You still needed the job. I had to work, but I didn't have a clue where that note came from. It just had those four names and our four basic pay. We were paid overtime. Like, for example, when my peer had a heart attack, I worked two months straight, 12-hour shifts, seven nights a week. And the work was exactly the same on all four shifts. And it was so devastating. So you get this note. It was 19 years you've been in this job. I imagine that in addition to being devastated, you are very angry. Well, not angry. I'm just disappointed, hurt, more like it. Huh. That's an interesting distinction. Well, I will tell you this. I grew up in one of the poorest counties of Alabama, and I was an only child. I didn't have anybody to fight with at home, so to speak. And one thing my mother taught me, she taught me that when something happened to me, Don't get angry and don't try to get even. Figure out how you're going to handle it. Stay focused and don't let anger eat up your energy. I guess that's right. But it also feels like such a human response to be mad in that moment. Well, uh, if I had got mad, I never would have made it through that 12-hour shift. (laughs) But see what the problem was immediately. 
my mind goes into calculations and I'm thinking about all of those overtime hours, mm. how many I had worked. You take 12 hours every night, seven nights a week, you got a lot of overtime money coming. I thought about that and I'm thinking about, you know, how hard life had been for us. We were the average American middle-class family trying to figure out how we will make ends meet. But halfway through that night, it hit me. My retirement is based on this, what I'm earning. My contributory retirement had been based on what I earned, matched by percentage from Goodyear. My 401k was 10% of what I earned, matched by 6% stock. And my Social Security all will be based on what I'm earning. Hmm. At that point, I was really two years away from retirement. And I'm thinking there's no way I can correct this. There's nothing I can do. But I thought about it during my shift and planned in my mind what I would do. And so I told my husband when I got home, I said, I do have to file a charge with the Equal Employment Commission unless you object. He said, what time do you want to leave? (laughs) So you knew that night, this is what I'm going to do. I knew by time the end of the shift and I knew what it would entail. And I knew the repercussions that would come back on me and me having two more years to work. I knew how, what a mess I would be and what I'd have to face. I knew that, but I was willing to do it because look here, I had worked all these years and all of this grease and lamp black and climbing ladders and throwing tires off of conveyors when they'd get locked up and doing exactly what the men were doing. And I was doing it better than some of them and at least as good as all of them. Now, I don't mean I should have been paid if this guy got 6000 a month. I should not have maybe gotten exactly 6000 but I should have been at least 5500 I should have been in the ballpark. But you weren't making 500 bucks less. You were making 40% less. Yeah, I was making 3700 a month. That was my base pay. What I learned, how much difference they were making than me, and I had already played around with a few numbers on a scratch card in my pocket during the night when I have a break or something, figuring out how much money I lost last month and the month before. I just couldn't let it go. I'm just the type of person. If it's wrong, it's wrong. Let's make it right. Let's fight. Let's do what we have to do. You know, I know they're they're making a movie about your life, and I, I want to talk about what that's like, but... That feels like a movie scene, you doing the math on a scratch card and realizing how much money had been taken from you. Yeah. One half of the month, I had lost $4,000 in overtime. Wow. What you earn today will carry you on for the rest of your life. Uh, When we take jobs and go to work, our retirement starts right then. For young people, it establishes who they are. In their status in life, how they live, what they eat, what they wear, and the communities they live in, their families, and the education they're able to provide, their savings for retirement, and any recreation through the years. It determines all of that. Right. It's it's not just what wasn't in the pay stub. It's all the things that are taken away from you at this point in your life. That's true. Well, I want to talk more about this stage of your life, but can we zoom through what happened next? When my husband said, what time you want to leave? So I took a shower, got fresh clothes on. He drove me to Birmingham because it was like 
almost 100 miles to their office. And at that time, I didn't have an appointment, of course. I just, this is just off the cuff. I got to go. So investigator, interviewer who called me back, her name was Ollie Kroon. And she interviewed me for over three hours. Wow. She never took a break. She didn't offer a break or nothing. And when I stood up to leave, she said, Mrs. Ledbetter, these people have been messing with you for a long time. So you talked to her for three hours. Yes. And then you take them to court and you win. And then Goodyear appeals. And the case goes all the way to the Supreme Court. Right. And not only does this decision have this massive impact on your personal finances, on your family's life, Mm -hmm. but it also has this huge precedent for equal pay across the country. Yeah, around the world. Around the world. And the case loses. We did. I filed a charge in 98, got the lawyer in 99. We got to federal court in 2003. It was before a federal jury, five men, two women. It lasted a week. And I testified, and they brought in every male manager at Goodyear to testify against me. I brought in two of the women. I mean, it was so obvious that I had been discriminated against simply because I was a woman. Can you tell me about that moment in the Supreme Court when the decision came down? Well, the attorneys called me, and uh, it was the second chair who called me. He said, Lily, don't worry about the media. We'll handle them. Just refer them to us. Well, NBC called, and I said, sure, I'm Lily Ledbetter. I live up 1206. Come on up. So they came up here and did an interview that afternoon. The next day, CNN called, and I told them, I said, sure, I'm Lily Ledbetter. Come right on up. I invited them in. Uh, Norman Lear called and sent a crew in out of Washington, the American Way, and we worked all day long. It's so interesting to me that your answer to how did it feel when you lost is about how much attention came to you in the wake of that and how much you were able to start talking about this issue on a national scale. Because that's basically what I was so curious about. You didn't win. You didn't get this money. You won't get it, right? No, it's gone. It's gone. It's never coming. Mm -hmm. And yet the case completely changed the course of your life. You became a household name in your 70s. Yes. You've got Obama's first bill named for you. Yes. Yes. (laughs) You know, you've, you've had this massive impact on not just the way that pay is administered in this country, but the way that it's thought about. Yes. What is it like to not get the money, but to have this incredible impact? Are you good with that? Would you rather have it reversed? I have gotten more than I would have had because had I won in Washington at the Supreme Court, remember my verdict by them was only 360000 The law firm would have gotten high, and I had been told that I would be paying federal and state taxes on it because it was in lieu of wages. I wouldn't have had much money, and I, I might have had 40000 left. I might have broke even. Right. So it's like it wouldn't have ended up being that much money anyway. Yeah. And if you hadn't lost, probably none of this happens. No.
I'm Bobby Finger. And I'm Lindsay Weber. And I want to tell you about a podcast I think you're going to love. Who Weekly is a podcast about everything you need to know about the celebrities you don't. Does celebrity news stress you out? Are there too many people you've literally never heard of? Check out Who Weekly, a podcast hosted by Lindsay Weber and me, Bobby Finger. Each episode goes deep into the biggest Who Liberty stories of the moment. And if you're still confused, we even have a weekly call-in episode where we'll answer the most burning listener queries. Who Weekly airs twice weekly with brand new episodes on Tuesdays and Fridays. Listen and follow Who Weekly on the Odyssey app or wherever else you get your podcasts. I'm Shimon Yai, and I have a new podcast called The Competition. Every year, 50 high school senior girls compete in a massive scholarship competition. I wouldn't say I have an ego problem, but I'm extremely competitive. All of the competitors are used to being the best and the brightest, and they're all vying for a huge cash prize. This will probably be the most intense thing you've ever gone through in your life. I remember that feeling because I was one of them. I lost. But now, I'm coming back as a judge and also a kind of teen girl anthropologist. Because if you want to understand what it's like to be a young woman in America today, the competition's not a bad place to start. Hopefully, no one will die on station night. From Pineapple Street Studios and Wondery, this is The Competition. Follow The Competition on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to The Competition early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus. Do you feel like they're like almost two different versions of you, like the before Lily and the after Lily? Well, you know, I went to work for Goodyear. The University of Alabama gave us, I don't know what kind of test they called it. It was one of those at the end. They told me I should have been a public speaker or a politician. And I thought that was the two funniest things I'd ever (laughs) heard. Looking back, I should have done it. You wish you would run for office? Yeah, I do. Because I was uh, 39 then. I was a perfect age. That would have been a wonderful time. But I had no idea, no idea that I had this in me. No idea. Has it changed how you see yourself this time in your life? Yes. How so? When they signed the bill at the White House, I had three checks handed to me to try to run for the representative in my area now. And I I gave it a lot of thought because I would like to have done it, but I'm the type I don't like to lose. And if I do lose, I go to figure out a way to make myself look better. So um, I finally decided I could do better telling my story. Do you ever think about what it would have been like if you'd run for office? Yes, it would have been tougher than it's really been on on my family because my husband had cancer. And after the the verdict came out and I traveled solid those two years, I went to Denver, spoke at the Democratic Convention that year. Yeah. And I came home and he had baked some sweet potatoes, fresh ones, and cooked me some cornbread because he knew I didn't get that in Denver. (laughs) So, you know, he was really nice to me. He always took care of the home base and uh, took care of himself. And he got 34 radiation chemo treatments too. And I've sacrificed him a lot and he knew it, but I offered when he got so worried, when the going got pretty tough to sell him my half of the house, I said, I'll just need you my half of the house. And that way, if Goodyear comes after me, that I don't own nothing. So they can't get anything. And, um, he said, don't worry about it. We started in the beginning when nothing will start again if we have to. Sounds like an incredible guy. Yeah, he was. He was really, he really was. And he supported me and 
I worked a lot of those shifts at Goodyear, those seven nights, seven days a week where he would drive me over there and I'd sleep another 30 minutes in the car and he'd be out there and pick me up. Otherwise, I'd be cleaning out ditches on the way home. What has it been like for the people in your life, like the people in Possum Trot, for you to have this incredible experience? Has it changed your relationships with the people you've known your whole life? Yes, it did. You know how your friends, you really find out who your friends are. Now, my family, they love it. Everybody has just been really incredible. The people who live right around me, they don't quite understand. I have my pictures in the my den or me and Ted Kennedy and me and Barack Obama, me and Hillary and me and George Miller from California, the one who started the Ledbetter Bill. Yeah, I mean, it's like, you know, do your friends from possum trot ever come over for dinner and they're like all right lily enough with enough with all these photos of you and obama (laughs) oh i got a better oh i had all my cousins on my dad's side of the family here for a dinner once and i tried to show them i had the book and all of the pictures and talk a little about my trip well everybody was just they didn't want to talk about it they wouldn't even look at the pictures i was describing where i was and i was telling all this stuff well they never just say nothing and, and as soon as they ate, they all got up and left. But what I found out later, they're all Republicans. Oh. And what I talked about, it don't mean if you're a Democrat or you're a Republican. What I'm talking about on equal pay, equal work, this is an American right. It has nothing to do with either party. So their politics were more important than uh, being proud of their cousin? Yeah. Yeah. What was that like for you? You know, that's what you're talking about wisdom. That's one thing you learn when you get older in life. I was very fortunate. I had a boss once at Goodyear that I learned a lot from him. But you've got to make your mind up and do what's important to you. And life is too short. I don't care if you do live to be 83, like I have been so fortunate. Life is still short. And I do not mix with places and people that they don't want me there. Was it hard to figure out? What you wanted? No. No, because I have people I dearly love. I think the world of them, they would give me anything they've got. And they have given me that. You were saying before that you had a manager at Goodyear who taught you a lot about what it means to live a good life. Mm-hmm. What has this part of your life taught you about what it means to live well? If it's right, it's right. And if it's supposed to work out, it will. Now, I didn't get the 300000 but I go to Washington and testify for Paycheck Fairness. I try to get things done and changed. I try to campaign for people I believe in, and uh, it's been a journey. You've made all this progress. Do you feel like there's still a long way to go? Oh, yes. Long way to go because I don't know what it will ever take for um, men to always respect women in their positions. It's better now. I've heard some lecturers say that it would require mothers and fathers to raise their sons from the very get-go to be respectful. And that may be. Are you optimistic that we'll get there? Yeah. Yes. Yes. You know, we've already achieved a lot more in my life than I thought we might. Most every state like New Jersey and New Mexico, California, All those states have passed equal pay laws, and they're very, very good. 
we're going to continue. Uh, we got to get people back on the track of working together, but we'll, we're going to get there. I don't know why we can't get ERA. I've never figured that one out yet. Put the women in the Constitution. I can't figure that one out. And I'm not sure I'll see that one in my life. But I like what's happened because there are, if a good person wants to work, they can find a place in this country to get the pay and to get their fair treatment. You live this amazing life. Do you think about your legacy? What are you going to leave behind in this world? They're going to say she made a difference. That's what I've told my pastor. I said, when you do my funeral, I said, I want you to say she made a difference, the very last thing. Because one thing you have to have to be on this journey I've been on, you've got to be a very, very strong person. And you can't take things personally. And that's what I tell people going into management. I don't care what you don't take it personal. You don't wear chips on your shoulder. You just let it slide off and work it out and move on. Is that something you can learn to do? Not take it personally? I did because somebody gave me that advice. A really good friend of mine told me that when I started in management. He said, now, Lily, what you do, you just let it slide off your back. And I grew up going to Westerns. And he said that white hat cowboy got knocked down, lost the girl, lost his money, lost his hat. But he always came out the winner in the end. And that was a good thing to think about. It put everything in perspective and it made it easy for me. And that's the way I look at it. It's like uh, getting that note slipped to you and deciding there's no point in getting mad about this. Mm -hmm. That's right. I'm just going to do something. That's right. Do something about it. I'm going to do all I can. It sounds like you really enjoy this life. I do. It's good. It's good. It's good. I have my house looks like a hoarder's house right now because <laughs> I, I'm going through things and trying to clean out and get things ready. But um, I'm 83. I don't know how long I'll live. Are you packing up your house because you're moving out? I would like to. This is more house. I got an acre lot. It's um, I need to get something smaller and cheaper. Where would you want to go? Um toward Birmingham because my daughter's family and my grandsons live there. But here I've got good neighbors and good friends and uh, they look out after me. If they don't see me come out, they come and check on me because um, I might be dead in here. And one my neighbor across the street kept worrying because he didn't know where a key was. I said, <laughs> well, let me show you. So I showed him where the keys hid. And um, so it's, it's, it's good. You seem so casual about um, your neighbors maybe discovering you dead. Yeah. Do you think about dying? Are you scared of it? No, I talk about it a lot because uh, I'm ready to go. I'm ready. Lily, I've talked to all these people on the show, and I've asked most of them a, a version of that question, kind of, are you scared of dying? I think you're the first person to say that you are ready. If you feel ready... Does that mean that there's not more that you want to do? I'll, I'll, let me rephrase that. I'm, I could go, but I really, I really like to hang around a while. I've still got more things to do. I have a strong faith. I really do. I have a strong faith. God, some, somebody up there is looking out after me. It, it's been, it's, I mean, I know it. I, I, 
I have to believe that there's a God in heaven and looks out after me. The doors that have opened and the things that have occurred. I've met so many wonderful, and you young people, you're the ones that's going to keep the world going and help make a difference because it's important. You got faith in us? I do. I do. That's something else you got to have. You got to have faith, hope, and you never give up. You never give up. Welcome to spring, the summer rain. 70 Over 70 is a production of Pineapple Street Studios, and it's produced by Jess Hackle. Our associate producer is Janelle Anderson. Our editors are Maddie Sprung-Kaiser and Joel Lovell. Research and additional reporting by Charlie Locke. Our mixer is Elliot Adler, and Jenna Weiss-Berman and I are the executive producers. Our theme song is Like a Dream by Francis and the Lights, and the music you're listening to right now is by Beverly Glenn Copeland, who's 77. Original music by Terrence Bernardo, additional music by Noble Kids, and music licensing by Dan Kanishkawi. Our cover art is by Myra Kalman, who's 72. And our episode art is by Lynn Staley. She's 74, and she's also my mom. Thank you, Phyllis Irwin. Thank you, Lillian Faderman. And thank you, Lily Ledbetter. I'm Max Linsky. Thanks for listening. Welcome the bud, the summer blue